Hello everyone and welcome to part 10 in our unorthodoxy series on reworlding, which is not as I originally had planned it. For one thing, my original plan was to end this series in the next episode, but instead of doing that, I'm using this episode to finish off the series. And there's another way that this will be different from what I planned, but I'll get to that in a moment. In the previous few episodes, I've offered a glance at spiral dynamics. Since a major part of my argument around how faith and understanding go through transitions revolves around the fact that our consciousness is enworlded, which is to say that no new belief comes along apart from it being in a sense welcomed by the world it is in. And also, no new belief comes along apart from it being in some way needed by us in the world, even if it is needed by us for a very short time, a kind of step along the way to something else. My original plan for this episode was to take a good long look at spiral dynamics in terms of the Enneagram of personality. I wanted to be able to go into some detail about the Enneagram, which is a horizontal model, and I wanted to look more specifically at how the Enneagram can contain within each of the nine personalities it describes some sense of the hierarchical model that is offered to us by spiral dynamics. In planning all of this, however, it soon became clear to me that this episode was becoming little more than a series of lists, as in, here's what a one is like in the purple stage, or here's what it's like in the red stage, or here's what it's like in the blue stage, and so on. I imagined myself sitting down and recording that and then editing the thing together, and then I imagined myself as one of you listening to it, and I figured that it was time to let the dream die. I didn't want to bore you and I didn't want to lose my mind in the process either. So here's what I'm going to do. First, I am going to put a link to an article by Deborah Uten and Beth O'Hara in the show description. Their article is a fascinating glimpse into an attempt to bridge the gap between the Enneagram and spiral dynamics. And in the end, I think it is worth reading for yourself. It's going to prove, I think, more instructive and constructive than any of my reporting on it would do. Still, I do want to talk about the broader patterns involved for each Enneotype as it progresses through the various stages of awareness um, suggested by Spiral Dynamics. I think this can be helpful even for those who aren't completely fully aware of the Enneagram or Spiral Dynamics, since it can be a way to examine some of the dynamics of change that we're all likely to go through. That said, though, a vague understanding of both Spiral Dynamics and the Enneagram will prove helpful. Right towards the end of this episode, I'm going to read you a little story by G.K. Chesterton, which suggests a bit of how growth can feel or be experienced. It's one of my favorite Chesterton tales. It's very short, but it's very deep and well worth reflecting on. So, mercifully, I'm not going to get too technical in all of this. On the question of patterns and links between spiral dynamics and the Enneagram, there are only two patterns I want to talk about. The first is the pattern of death as resurrection, which is what Richard Raw calls falling upward. And the second is the pattern of dialectic. Once you have a handle on these two patterns, the details of how all of this plays out for each Enneotype should start to make more sense. And you can then just go and look at your own life and see how it makes sense for you. So first, let's talk about falling upward, the idea of death as resurrection. I highly recommend that you read Richard Raw's book, Falling Upward, for more on some of the kind of core ideas here. 
it's a fantastic exploration of one of the perennial themes of the human story. The goal of all genuine growth, as you know by now, is union with God. But what each of us is compelled by, at least when we are immature, is a false sense of the good. We cannot be motivated by something called pure evil, since, well, pure evil does not exist. But we are, as St. Thomas Aquinas points out, always motivated by some sense of the good, even if it happens to be a very incomplete sense of the good. So ones on the Enneagram, for example, are motivated by perfection, which is a kind of sublimation of their original sin of anger. And because this is a mere sublimation of a vice, and remember all types manifest some good that masks a deeper vice, because this is a mere sublimation of a vice, there is a mistaken sense present of what good really is. The one, in this case, needs to die to self, to die especially to their false identity as a perfectionist in order to embrace a deeper sense of what participating in goodness would really look like and be in practice. This is the basic idea. Death as resurrection or falling upward, it's vital for us no matter what our personality type. The idea here is really not to settle for a lesser good, but to move always towards a greater good. We use the lesser good, though, as a kind of springboard towards better things. And in a sense, spiritual growth, I would say, is only possible if we feel each stage of transition not as moving towards higher levels of success, but rather um, that we feel them as humbly falling into something deeper. Um, in a way, if you want to think about this, it's almost as if the spiral is not moving up, but down. So very briefly, and yes, I apologize for my need to include something of a list. Ones grow from anger towards tolerance and serenity. So it's um, anger manifests itself as a desire for perfection rather than a desire for the good. So it's moving from that anger towards serenity. Twos grow from pride towards humility. Threes grow from vanity and deceit towards honesty. Fours grow from envy towards a kind of grateful equanimity. And fives grow from avarice towards non-attachment. Sixes grow from fear towards courage. Sevens grow from gluttony towards constancy. And eights transcend lust and grow towards temperance. And then finally nines transcend sloth and grow towards discernment and then right action. With all of this in mind, and of course with the spiral in mind, we can look at the second pattern, which is the idea that we grow somewhat dialectically. This is to say that it seems that we're all built to enter into a conversation with our former and future selves. These conversations tend to operate something along the lines of Hegel's dialectic, although I have some problems with um, some aspects of Hegel's dialectic. The idea that I want uh, to express here, though, is about a dialogue between identity, what we identify with, and with difference, what we don't automatically identify with. And through this dialogue, we arrive at a way of understanding ourselves as including both identity and difference, and most importantly, transcending it. As we mature, we start to realize that we are not simply the opposite of what we resist, but in some sense, depend on what we resist for our sense of self. But also, that part of us which is our true self transcends this issue of identity and difference. 
just very briefly, my issue with Hegel's dialectic is that it subjects every individual person to a kind of impersonal logical procedure. My issue is, is that whatever should be happening in dialectic should involve some form of self-transformation, uh, which is something that is hinted very nicely by Chesterton's story, which I'll get to later. While this dialectical movement is definitely still evident in all of us, it still plays out in very different ways in the Enneagram. Ones oscillate in their values around a concern for perfection, twos around the concern for serving and helping others, threes have a concern for efficiency and performance, fours have a concern for originality, fives have a concern for perceiving, sixes have a concern for safety, sevens they have a concern for enjoyment, and for eights, the concern is with challenging the status quo. And finally, nines have a concern for peacemaking. But each of these concerns plays out very differently depending on who we're dealing with, and also it depends on the state or stage of life that each type is at. Two things about the spiral are worth keeping in mind along these lines. The one is the fact that growth relies on a movement towards or away from people especially with regard to the different values, memes, concerns of each stage. The second is the fact that we are prone to becoming overly identified with the value systems and concerns of each level of the spiral, such that it becomes quite easy to get stuck in confirming our vices rather than in transcending them. I'm going to just use one of the types to note how this plays out, and that type is type two. Twos are helpers, but at each stage, the concern for helping others, which is kind of an expression of the need to be needed, this will play out very differently. So in purple, the helper may end up being a martyr, and in red, the martyr will flip on its head to become more assertive as a provider. In blue, the authoritarian ego of the red stage will give way to a servant who will make sure that stability is maintained and that people feel attended to as individuals within the tribe. The twos are the kind of uh, the, the glue, I guess, of, of, of the social sphere. In orange, the pride of twos will turn towards a more self-orientated focus. Twos will serve others still, but will be more conscious of how their own desires are being met. This will then flip again as a two enters the kind of green level, during which time the dominant tribal cause will quickly overwhelm the two, whose sense of self may get swallowed up again. And finally, as the two starts to reach yellow and turquoise, the tensions between self and other will start to balance out. The two in yellow can see the value of her gifts and needs, and in turquoise can be loving without being at the mercy of others' needs. One way of understanding this is that as you move up the spiral, the tension between self and other will tend to diminish and also the distance between self and other will start to close, but never be conflated. There's no eradication of distance in this. You can notice how this example of dialectic plays out in your own life, and I'm going to not say more about it because I think it's good for you to figure it out on your own. So having said all of that, I want to tell you a story. So this is from a book published in 1958, edited together by Chesterton's secretary, Dorothy Collins. And it's just a series, a collection of, of essays and stories from the Daily News, which is one of the publications that Chesterton wrote for. And right at the end of this book is, oh, by the, sorry, the book, 
the book's name is called Lunacy and Letters, which is such a great title for a book. Right at the end of the book is a story called The Roots of the World. And in a way, I think this is almost a better explanation of how change works in us and, and transforms us than maybe anything else I've said in this series. So here goes The Roots of the World. Once upon a time, a little boy lived in a garden in which he was permitted to pick the flowers but forbidden to pull them out by the roots. There was, however, one particular plant, insignificant, somewhat thorny, with a small star-like flower, which he very much wanted to pull out by the roots. His tutors and guardians who lived in the house with him were worthy, formal people, and they gave him reasons why he should not pull it up. They were silly reasons as a rule, but none of the reasons against doing the thing was quite so silly as the little boy's reason for wanting to do it, for his reason was that truth demanded that he should pull the thing up by the roots to see how it was growing. Still, it was a sleepy, thoughtless kind of house, and nobody gave him the real answer to his argument, which was that it would kill the plant, and that there is no more truth about a dead plant than about a live one. So, one dark night, when clouds sealed the moon like a secret too good or too bad to be told, the little boy came down the old creaking stairs of his farmhouse and crept into the garden in his nightgown. He told himself repeatedly that there was no more reason against his pulling this plant off the garden than against his knocking off a thistletop idly in a lane. Yet the darkness which he had chosen contradicted him, and also his own throbbing pulse, for he told himself continually that the next morning he might be crucified as a blasphemer who had torn up the sacred tree. Perhaps he might have been so crucified if he had so torn it up, I cannot say, but he did not tear it up, and it was not for want of trying. For when he laid hold of the little plant in the garden, he tugged and tugged, and found the thing held as if clamped to the earth with iron. And when he strained himself a third time, there came a frightful noise behind him, and either nerves or, which he would have denied, conscience made him leap back and stagger and stare around. The house he lived in was a mere bulk of blackness against the sky almost as black. Yet after staring long, he saw that the very outline had grown unfamiliar, for the great chimney of the kitchen had fallen crooked and calamitous. Desperately, he gave another pull at the plant and heard far off the roof of the stables fall in and the horses shriek and plunge. Then he ran into the house and rolled himself in the bedclothes. Next morning found the kitchen ruined, the day's food destroyed, two horses dead, and three broken loose and lost. But the boy still kept a furious curiosity. And a little while after, when a fog from the sea had hidden house and garden, he dragged again at the roots of the indestructible plant. He hung on to it like a boy on the rope of a tug-of-war, but it did not give. Only through the grey sea fog came choking and panic-stricken cries. They cried that the king's castle had fallen, that the towers guarding the coast were gone, that half the great sea city had split away and slid into the sea. Then the boy was frightened for a little while and said no more about the plant. But when he had come to a strong and careless manhood and the destruction in the district had been slowly repaired, he said openly before the people, let us have done with the riddle of this irrational weed. In the name of truth, let us drag it up. And he gathered a great company of strong men, like an army, to meet invaders. And they all laid hold of the little plant, and they tugged night and day. 
and the Great Wall fell down in China for 40 miles, and the pyramids were split up into jagged stones, and the Eiffel Tower in Paris went over like a nightbin, killing half the Parisians, and the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor fell forward suddenly and smashed the American fleet, and St. Paul's Cathedral killed all the journalists in Fleet Street, and Japan had a record series of earthquakes and then sank into the sea. The point was that when they had tugged for about 24 hours, the strong men of that country had pulled down about half the civilized world, but had not pulled up the plant. I will not weary the reader with the full facts of this realistic story, with how they used first elephants, then steam engines to tear up the flower, and how the only result was that the flower stuck fast, but that the moon began to be agitated, and even the sun was a bit dicky. At last, the human race interfered, as it always does at last, by means of a revolution. But long before that, the boy, or the man who is the hero of this tale, had thrown up the business, merely saying to his pastors and masters, you gave me a number of elaborate and idle reasons why I should not pull up this shrub. Why did you not give me the two good reasons? First, that I can't. Second, that I should damage everything else if I ever tried it on. And having read the story again, I'm not going to explain how I see its meaning. I think that it's it would be great uh, for you to ponder it for a little while and see what you make of it. But I do want to offer some concluding thoughts on this series. I began with a very simple idea. We all go through changes in our faith and understanding, and often these involve spiritual crises. Sometimes we feel our faith slip away, and so we end up as atheists when we were once theists, for example. Our ideas change, our experiences shift, and we alter the way that we see the world. The reality is this, we are not static entities. We live in a world dripping in contingency and everything is in a state of becoming, although it is not always very clear what it's going to become. Generally speaking, I think people handle the whole faith in transition thing very poorly in two main ways, which I've already mentioned, but I'm just going to highlight as we conclude. The first way is that people freak out. I remember a friend of mine over a decade back talking to me in a state of panic about how her faith was falling apart and how I needed to help her. I just listened. I think, arguably, I think that's the best thing anyone can do when someone else's uh, sense of existence is crumbling in a way. Be a good listener. Don't judge. The outcome is not set in stone. In any case, the faith that gets lost is... 100% of the time faith in an idol. We cannot in any absolute sense lose faith in God as that genuinely transcendent ground of our being because God is not a knowable thing. Uh, to, to make God a knowable thing is to assume that the transcendent can be bound up in a finite linguistic form or a form of understanding. God is not a being but beyond being. God as as truly transcendent cannot be reduced to any sort of finite constraints of, of language or understanding. Um, and in fact, I would say that to lose faith in God is just one big fat category error. My point is simply this. It's not worth freaking out. It's really okay. You are not going to be the first to lose your faith and you will not be the last. Chances are this will be good for you if it happens to be something you are going through.
So that's the first thing I think people do wrong. They freak out when in the end there is nothing to freak out about. But I guess it takes a bit of faith to be able to handle the loss of faith. It is uncomfortable, I will grant you that, but it is certainly not the end of the world. The second thing I think people do wrong is that they jump too quickly onto the next belief bandwagon. This happens in politics as much as in religion. A lefty becomes a right-winger just as quickly as a Christian might become a Buddhist or vice versa. This, as I see it, is just a defense mechanism resulting from the discomfort of not having clarity about what your own changing faith is doing to you. In moments of instability, we are very likely to grasp at anything that happens to look more stable than our current or former state of being. A fairly suitable metaphor for this is the rebound relationship. One relationship ends and the heartbroken subject finds the next person who happens to be willing to put up with them, even if it is just for a very short time. Well, the wisdom I have for you is simply this. Wait, sit tight and try to figure out how all of this is working in a slow measured fashion. Part of growing up, I think, means becoming comfortable with things not resolving exactly the way you expect them to. Related to this is one crucial thing. If you are putting the work in and doing the thinking and praying and searching and so on, eventually the light will dawn. It's something Simone Weil suggests. Just pay attention. Eventually clarity will come. I'm much clearer now on what I think than what I was a decade ago. I have a much better sense of what my theological stance on most things is, and I have a great deal more clarity about most of the areas in my life. And while I may have wanted answers sooner and clarity way back when I felt completely disorientated, everything has happened in the way that it needed to. I have both arrived and not arrived. I have come a long way, and I still have a very long way to go. So with all of that said, I just want to say thank you for joining me in this series. I know I probably ended up saying both too much and too little, but I hope sincerely that some of this has been helpful and even encouraging to you. Take care, everyone.